Hi, I'm Serena. And I'm Jen. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're kicking off our series of Gen X rom-coms with an influential 80s indie that changed the face of Black cinema. We'll talk about some of the tropes, filming techniques, and topics that make for a Gen X film. And we'll explore the topic of non-monogamous relationships as we discuss Spike Lee's very successful first feature, the 1986 film, She's Gotta Have It. Hey, Serena. Hey, Jen. It's just us today. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I think sometimes you can get a more in-depth conversation with the two people on the show. So I look forward to hearing more from you today. Okay. And um, b- before we get to our main introduction question, you said something when we were talking before the podcast about it's a South Swell Day. Can you tell me what that, like, <laughs> what that means? I'm curious. <laughs> it just means that usually the wind is coming from the east or the northeast. And now it's coming from the south. So the boat is in a different direction and it takes the waves in a different way. The boat takes waves in a different way. So it it makes the boat rockier. It's just just boat life. (laughs) Yeah. It's fine. It just might be a little little noisier than usual. That's all. That's interesting. How do you like find out all this information about you just check it like – just go outside and you know, or like, do you have, yeah, yeah, you can, you, you get kind of used to like knowing the directions, um, when you live on a boat or work on the water, um, you always know like where North is and South is and things like that, but you can also look it up. There's different like apps and websites where you can always look up like how the week is going to be as far as like weather is just like you would, but you pay more attention to like wind direction and swells. Very in other cool. places, we don't really worry about tides, but in other places, um, tides are a big deal. But our, our tides don't really change that d- drastically, All thankfully. Right. <laughs> That's cool. Like, it's a whole different world that you're living in, and I, oh, I like yeah. hearing about it. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's just nothing to me. It's just normal. <laughs> so um, today we're starting the series on Generation X movies or Gen X movies, and Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our generations that we belong to and like how we feel about them. And so I'm Gen X and I, I'm late Gen X. Like sometimes they try to turn me into an Xennial and I'm like, I reject that. Okay. (laughs) Like I was born in 77. I claim Gen X status and I'm happy with it. I I feel like belong a sense of belonging. How about you? Like what generation are you? And do you feel any certain way about it? Um, I mean, I'm always, I've always thought of myself as a millennial. Um, I am, I'm the older millennial. I think it starts either the year before I was born or the year, depending on like, you know, what Google search you go on <laughs> as far as the years. Um, but, but yeah, it is interesting. I mean, cause I know a lot of like, even my own boyfriend is also a millennial and we're 10 years apart. So it is like interesting. We do have like very different um experiences growing up and i think all of it is really based around technology because i think Mm -hmm. technology has been like the biggest um 
change in this generation uh, compared to other generations. But that's so you think that like within the millennial generation, there's also splits because of technology, basically, or like oh, absolutely, yeah, okay. Because I mean, you can even even go into like like when you got a cell phone. Like I didn't have a cell phone until I was like. 19 or something and of course it was like the nokia brick but like my boyfriend who was born in 92 he had a cell phone in like middle school (laughs) yeah and that and that was like normal you know and i was like cell phones didn't exist when i was in middle school you know what i mean so it's just kind of it is it is definitely um there are definitely differences but yeah i do consider myself like an an older millennial and like, what does it mean to you to be a millennial? Like what, what kind of, um, does it give you any kind of identity or like, do you reject or identify with any of the stuff that is typically put on millennials? Uh, you know, I don't really pay attention to any of that stuff, okay. to be honest. Um, I just, because I kind of, I've always just lived in my own little world anyways, and kind of rejected what main society says or does. Um, I don't really like the idea of, of, you know, there's the, the idea that millennials are like lazy and don't want to work and all of those things that I hear a lot, which I just don't think is true. I just think that the world is very difficult right now. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's so much harder now than previous generations to have things like, um, b- job with benefits or to be able to buy a house. Um, yeah. and it was a big issue with, um, my generation and your generation, I'm sure, you know, things like healthcare and childcare and working in general is just has changed so much, um, in yeah. the last 20 years that it's just, yeah. it's just hard to, I guess, live the American dream or whatever. Yeah. No, I agree. I sometimes refer to myself as Gen X culturally, but with like uh, millennial economic problems because <laughs> I graduated college kind of later than a lot of people did. Like I graduated in my early thirties. So I kind of like graduated at the same time as like an elder millennial. And so I inherited a lot of the same financial economic situations of millennials. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> but like for me, like, identifying with Gen X, it's like sort of about, I think a lot of it is about the whole period of the nineties with grunge culture and like Mm. anti-consumerism culture and like Mm. kind of going your own way ideas and kind of an obsession with pop culture. I mean, I'm running a podcast about movies, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's very Gen X also, but yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And I also like the idea of Gen X bridging the baby boom and millennial um, generations and kind of being the generation that had a foot in the past where we barely had any technology, we weren't on the internet, and then a foot in the future where we can understand, you know, for the most part, we can understand future technologies, current technologies. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, do you want to say anything more about um, generations or? No, not really. Okay, cool. All right. So... (laughs) So this probably isn't going to be the last time we'll talk about generational identity. I'll probably talk to some of the other hosts about it too. Um, We're going to have some other Generation X people and some other millennials as well hosting in the coming weeks. Maybe we'll get a Gen Z. I don't know. We'll see. And um, some of the movies we're going to be covering in the Gen X series include Singles, Reality Bites, True Romance, Chasing Amy, and a couple more surprises for you. So stay tuned for that. So before we get started with today's episode, just a reminder, as usual on the show, we'll have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we'll let you know when the spoiler section begins. 
We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom. And our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And now let's listen to the trailer for She's Got to Have It. Two socks, two socks. We fight out. We fight out. We fight out. Hi, I'm Spike Lee. I'm not directing. I do this. It pays the rent, puts food on the table, butter on my whole wheat bread. Anyway, I had this new comedy coming out. It's a very funny film. She's got to have it. Check this out. Nola was something special. She had this amazing effect on men. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Good night. Good night. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Is Jamie there? I was the best thing that ever happened to Nola, darling. Ask her, she'll tell you that herself. Why, she worshipped me. I've never seen anybody like to look at themselves more than you do. Don't you ever get tired? Never happened, baby. (laughs) Stop, stop, Nola, stop, stop. Nola knew what she wanted. And she's got to have it. You know, Nola, you've done me wrong. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. So you're bugging out, right? You're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you're gonna go. If you don't, I'll still be here on this corner. Two socks, two socks, three fight hours, three fight hours. Two socks, three fight hours. Fight out, fight out, fight out. This is the weirdest trailer, but that's like the actual trailer. <laughs> okay. Well. Like, does that in any way resemble the movie to you? <laughs> um,. Yeah, and yes and no. It just doesn't really give a good idea of what it's about. Yeah. It's just kind of yeah. like Spike Lee being Spike Lee. Yeah. Even like, did the- he, I mean, it, supposedly it is true that he did like sell socks at in St. Mark's to. So, uh, yeah, I've seen some people have said that, but then in this book I read, so there's this book about 90s film called Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, and it's by John Pearson, who produced a lot of. 90s films or helped to produce a lot of 90s films, including She's Gotta Have It. Mm-hmm. He gave um $10,000 to finish the movie. And he said that this was not an actual thing that Spike Lee did. It was a joke he made that he was going to have to sell tube socks uh, in order to get it out of the editing bay. And so they used it in the trailer as kind of like a funny joke between them or something. But okay. I've, I've seen other people where they've said that he did do it. So I don't know. It's kind of mythology, basically, that's developed around the movie. <laughs> Yeah, like the one thing that struck me about the trailer, though, is that you don't really hear Nola's voice very much in it. And her voice Mm. is very dominant in the movie, I would say, Mm. even though, you know, she's seeing these three guys, like a lot of it is her talking to the camera. But yeah, yeah, this is very, this is a Spike Lee showboat. This is his character, Mars Blackman, like just going (laughs) like you hear the please, baby, please, like twice. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It must have worked, though. I don't know. The movie did well. So maybe this was the trailer it needed. Right. Anyway. So basic information about this film. Um, She's Got to Have It was released in 1986. It was written, directed, and edited by Spike Lee. 
and stars Tracy Camilla Johns, Tommy Redman Hicks, John Canada Terrell, and Spike Lee himself. Lots of middle names in there. <laughs> uh, so the basic premise of She's Gotta Have It is uh, it's based around Nola Darling. And she's an independent woman dating three very different men simulta- simultaneously or at the same time. Uh, throughout the movie, her three lovers and some of her friends are talking directly to the camera, like a documentary style, and about Nola and their relationship with her. Uh, Nola also gives her side of the story to the camera as she uh, tries to keep the lovers happy and her own independent lifestyle intact. So I learned a lot about this movie through various sources for reading and from watching interviews and listening to a podcast too, which I'll link where Spike Lee talks to John Turturro about his filmmaking and including this movie. Um, so one thing, one of the inspirations for this movie, Spike Lee wanted to explore kind of the double standard where men can date like multiple women. It's considered no big deal, but if a woman does that, they're judged harshly for that behavior. So Mm -hmm. I think that definitely comes through. Um, but he also said that Akira Kurosawa's film Rashomon, um, was one of the big inspirations and kind of a basis for she's got to have it. And the thing about that film is a movie where like you see the same, um, incident uh portrayed through three different people's perspectives so i think like that probably was instrumental in inspiring the different perspectives on nola darling that you see in the film another inspiration he said was jean-luc godard's breathless which he said inspired the black and white and the editing and in terms of the filming this film was made very quickly um according to spike lee and deadline they shot for 12 days in 1985 July 1st through July 14th in two six-day weeks. And they were filming a lot without permits, like in parks and stuff. So like just guerrilla style filmmaking. Um, The editing then took about a year because the film kept getting held up by the editing lab because Spike Lee ran out of money to pay them. So this is like real independent filmmaking. And And it's also like a different era when you think about it. You know what I mean? That you would have like an editing lab that would like... As opposed to like just like your computer at home where most people oh, yeah. do edit- Digital editing. Digital changed. Yeah. Yeah. Where you do editing now. So that that's kind of like, whoa, you'd forget about that, you know? Digital totally changed the industry. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um, and then several of Spike Lee's family members were part of the cast and crew. We'll talk about that more in the cast and crew section. That was one of the biggest surprises to me. Um, the budget of the film was $175,000. And it ended up making $7.1 million. So really good return on investment there. Um, The film went to Cannes Film Festival and it won the Award of the Youth for a foreign film. And the New York Times said that the film, quote, ushered in, along with Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, the American independent film movement of the 1980s. Uh, The movie was also rebooted as a television series recently from 2017 to 2019. You can see it on Netflix. Lee created the show and he directed the episodes. Um, He wrote a few of the episodes, but there were also women involved in writing these episodes too. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting things you can learn about the movie. Only recently I just discovered there's Spike Lee wrote an entire book about making this film, which I wish I'd read now, but I did (laughs) not get around to reading that. But that's another thing you might want to seek out if you're a big fan. So first, I just wanted to kind of ask, like, your first impressions of the film, like, had you seen it before, etc.? Um, I had not seen it before, which I, I kind of am sad about. I mean, I guess there's lots of movies that I should see, which I haven't. But um, 
my first impressions i did live in new york for uh for four years so there was kind of like a a nostalgia for me like i recognized a lot of the locations Mm -hmm. um i know a lot of it was filmed in uh fort green in brooklyn which looked very different in Mm -hmm. the 80s than when i lived there which were like the early 2000s so that was interesting so wait Um, you lived in the same area even like um kind of like not really not in the same neighborhood but i i definitely like was in those neighborhoods like quite often because they were kind of close by to my neighborhood if that makes sense yeah i mean brooklyn's a big place but it's also a small place like i don't know um i could it was definitely a walking distance let's say that um i definitely walked through like some of those parks and stuff obviously it'd become maybe not obviously but it's become much more gentrified yeah um i.e there's not as many um black people in those areas now which is really interesting because uh this this movie doesn't have any white people you know you don't even really see them walking around a little bit in some of like the downtown scenes but i was noticing that i was like wow they're in a really like there are hardly i don't think there were any like speaking white characters which i guess is yeah i don't think so which is was probably revolutionary i guess yeah perhaps i know yeah I don't, I'm not sure, like, in terms of, like, um, indie films, you know, there might have been yeah. other indie films, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So what about your impression of the movie then, in general? Oh, um, so I like the part, you know, the, the New Yorkiness of it. <laughs> That's a thing, because it was very nostalgic. <laughs> um, the premise itself, eh, like, I... I thought it was interesting. I liked it. I, I had kind of a hard time relating, I guess, to that character, because I've just never really dated at all i guess is really my thing let alone multiple people so it's just like hard for me to like even wrap my head around um what do you mean by that. you haven't dated though because you've been in relationships so like- yeah i've been in re- yeah i have but it was it was always like a struggle like i was like i i always like joke that i i was had a hard enough time finding one person to date me let alone okay. multiple people okay. to date me. Sure, you know sure. what i mean like um but I did like her character as far as like her independence, her, um, her loft was cool. But, <laughs> yeah. but other than that, I was like, eh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, is it a film that like you would like recommend or would you kind of like not recommend it as much? Um, I would recommend it as it being the start of something like the start of Spike Lee's career and, but I, I don't think anyone that I know would really like in sitting down and like watching it like as a movie. I mean, okay. that's just me. Sorry. I don't know. No, that's okay. Unless you're no. really into like movies in some way or, you know, wanted to understand the more independent film movement. But other than that, I'm like, eh. Yeah. So like when I first saw it, actually, the first time I watched it, I felt kind of the same way. Like I watched it um, probably at the beginning of last year or something. Mm -hmm. And I was, I don't know, I just felt a little underwhelmed by it, but like on subsequent viewings, I liked it more. And I think it might be that like when I first saw it, there are certain things about it being an independent film that are a little clunky, like some of the line deliveries of the acting and like, yeah, um, like can be a little stilted at times. Although mm-hmm. I do, th- I think the actors are perfectly good. I think they were just filming incredibly fast, incredibly quickly. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then when I sort of like took it in for what it was and like accepted it on its own terms, I really liked it so much more the second and third times I saw it. Mm-hmm. And like, especially like the cinematography and the music, I think contribute so much to the quality of the, 
the film. Mm-hmm. And um, I really like um, Tracy Camilla John's um, performance as Nola Darling. Um, I think she has a lot of charisma and a lot of like, her voice is great. Like her, I just, I like, I feel like I want to watch more of her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about her and what happened to her with her late life later. But um, yeah, like, I, I really like her performance and I can relate to, you know, dating uh, multiple people, but like um, in a different way than she does things, but still, yeah, it's, it's, it's really also rev- very revolutionary to have a movie about a woman who's having like three different relationships and that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. in the eighties, even today, it would almost be kind of like that. So mm-hmm. kind of revolutionary. So yeah, I respect it a lot for that. And it is really important if you want to understand Spike Lee's career to, to go where back to where it all started to the foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit, unless you want, do you want to add more or like? No, no. Okay. So, so we'll go ahead and we'll talk a little bit about the cast and crew. And I'm going to tell you about a little bit about Spike Lee. I mean, obviously there's a million things you could say about Spike Lee. Um, In this film, obviously he's the writer, director, producer, editor, plays Mars Blackman. And Mars Blackman's kind of this like really out there, like audacious, energetic, like guy wearing his like sporty clothes and sneakers and like a big giant gold necklace that says Mars. So he's playing this really showboaty character in the movie. So for Spike Lee, she's got to have it was his first feature length film. Um, before that he had made a couple of shorts and he made an one hour film called Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop. We cut heads, which had been like really w- well regarded um, after she's got to have it. He pretty much immediately made school days in 1988 And then, of course, his breakout film, Do the Right Thing, in 1989. And he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay for Do the Right Thing. Should have been nominated for Best Director, I think most people agree on these days. Um, In the 90s, some of his films, popular films, included Mo' Better Blues, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X. And he was nominated for an Oscar for the documentary Four Little Girls. And then in the 2000s, he did work including Bamboozled, Inside Man, and the documentary, When the Levees Broke, he won an Emmy for directing that. And then post-2010, um, some of his biggest things have been Chirac, Black Klansman, where he won an Oscar for Best Screenplay and was nominated for Best Picture in Directing. His um, TV reboot of She's Gotta Have It. And recently he did the, the Five Bloods, which was, I think, on Netflix also in 2020. And he's got right now two projects in pre-production. One of them is an untitled Spike Lee musical. So I don't know what that is. And then there's something called The Prince of Cats, which is going to be a modernization of Romeo and Juliet. And I'm excited about that. I would love to see Spike Lee take on Shakespeare personally. What do you think about that? No. Yeah, that'd be good. And then, um, yeah. Have you seen like a number of his other movies? I've seen a lot of them, like probably about half. Like, have you seen any of his other pictures or have any favorites? Of I them? have seen some of them. Yep. Um, not all. But more of the bigger ones, I I need to see his newer ones because I know uh, Five Bloods was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is. And Black Klansman, I, I haven't seen either. Oh, yeah. Me. Really good. Really good. Yeah. 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 I kind of like his older stuff too, though. Like um, School Days and Do the Right Thing are both also awesome. Like, have you seen mm-hmm. either of those? Lines? I have it. I actually oh. have it. Oh, wow. Not Do the Right Thing? No, I haven't even oh, seen man. Do the Right Thing. Oh, man. You got like some awesomeness in store for you then. <laughs> Seriously. No, like for real. Like School Days, I think, has some of the same like sort of indie clunkiness at times that um, She's Got to Have It has, although I think it's worth watching. But Do the Right Thing is like polished. 
Yeah, I do know yeah. that Do the Right Thing came up a lot like recently um, with like some of the uh, race protests and things mm-hmm. like that as being very um, as a reference point. Like, see, this yeah. was something that was addressed, you know, back in the 80s and it's still going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, that film is still very relevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watching that film. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's sad that we're still dealing with the same problems, but like just Spike Lee's vision of America has been very like prescient. Oh my God. It sounds so pretentious saying that. I just think, yeah, Spike Lee's <laughs> kind of had his finger. Spike Lee's kind of had his finger on the pulse. I think of yeah, kind of like where sure. America is I think at. is why he's so controversial. Yeah, at, at times. Although he like he often does like he likes to kind of insert himself in public debates too, though. So I think that <laughs> lends itself to it as well. But yeah. Uh, so Spike Lee has still never won Best Director or Best Picture. Um, he did receive an honorary Oscar in 2015, but like, yeah, I bet <laughs> some thinks. people wish they could go back in time and give him some Oscars for some of his other work. Right. Um, yeah. He often writes his own movies. He also often appears in his movies, especially his earlier projects. And a lot of his films highlight Brooklyn, which which is where he grew up. And I just also wanted to shout out that he has his own production company and it's called 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks. And for people who aren't familiar with why it's named that, um, 40 Acres and a Mule was like a promise of land and animals that was made to former black slaves in January of 1865 that was then rescinded by Andrew Johnson when he became president in the fall of 1865. So it was like this really brief uh, moment of like sort of reparations that was then taken away quickly, like the same year. So yeah. And he's Spike Lee's keeping that at the front of people's minds with his production company's name. Anything else you want to say about Spike Lee or no related to that? Okay. So, (laughs) so we'll move on to, um, so this whole movie is, uh, based on the character of Nola Darling, which is played by Tracy Camilla Johns. Uh, She's Gotta Have It is her film debut, and she only has nine acting credits on IMDb. Most of them are in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, other notable projects include New Jack City. She had a small role in Spike Lee's film Mo Better Blues. And then she appeared as an older version of Nola Darling in Spike Lee's Red Hook Summer. She also has a guest appearance in the TV reboot, reboot of She's Gotta Have It. Um, and also she was in Tone Loke's Wild Thing video. Yeah, I just I had to put that in because that was like so random, right? Yeah. <laughs> I want to go watch that video now again, too. <laughs> That's like such my middle school experience right there. Soon after She's Gotta Have It, she developed a substance abuse problem and had difficulty finding roles. She became a born-again Christian, now works as a community service coordinator. Yeah, like I'll put in the show notes, there's this whole interview she did about um, how she became a Christian, basically, but it's also about like her experience with She's Gotta Have It. It's really interesting. Um, She seems like she's still a pretty cool, solid person, but just now in Christian form. Hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a Christian myself, but like, you know, it it seems to have worked for her. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to then talk about Tommy Redmond Hicks. Um, He plays Jamie Overstreet, who's kind of like, I would say the main love interest of Nola. Like, even though she has these three love interests, like she does seem to pay more attention to Jamie. Um, So he appeared in Lee's student film, Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads. And he was in a TV movie before She's Gotta Have It. 
Um, some of his other work includes Daughters of the Dust, The Five Heartbeats, and he's appeared in a lot of TV shows, including Charmed, Seinfeld, L.A. Law. Um, he's also worked in theater, and he also teaches film, television, and theater at universities. So he didn't become a big star either, but he's been working. Hmm. And then we have John Canada Terrell that plays Greer Childs. This was his third film. Other well-known projects are including Boomerang and The Five Heartbeats. And he had a very small role in Mo Better Blues. He's still working today on indie projects. Uh, upcoming films are Kingdom Rain and I Am Black and I Am Proud. And then we're going to come to the cinematographer of this movie. And I don't always include cinematographers, but this guy is like kind of a huge, like he's a big deal. Okay. He's, he's more of a director these days. Um, Ernest Dickerson is um, Spike Lee's uh, cinematographer on this picture. And I think the cinematography also is just amazing in this movie. I mean, would you agree? Yeah. Like definitely. the shots are so beautiful and mm -hmm. in the black and white. And um, prior to, she's got to have it. Dickerson had also worked um, as a cinematographer on Lee's short film. And he'd worked also with John Sayles on the brother from another planet. He'd worked on Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA video and he'd done Crush Groove and the TV show Tales from the Dark Side he'd also worked on. And then he went on to serve as cinematographer on Lee's other early films. So he was cinematographer for School Days, Do the Right Thing, More Better Blues, Jungle Fever, and Malcolm X. But then in 1992, he wrote and directed his first feature, which was Juice. And after that, he just basically went on his own and directed. Um, he's also directed um, a lot of episodes of The Wire, the TV show Treme, Dexter, The Walking Dead, and Bosch. And right now he's filming a TV miniseries called DMZ. And this is really intriguing. This is the IMDb description. It says, it is a civil war breaks out in a futuristic America and Manhattan becomes a demilitarized zone. So I would watch that. That sounds fun. I mean, not fun. Like <laughs> dystopian fun, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And apparently he appears as dog number eight and she's got to have it. I don't remember which dog that was, but like we'll, we'll, we'll put it like kind of like guys who are jerks basically yeah yeah we'll put that in so then just some other cast and crew we're going to quickly mention there's just way too many talented people on this so there's a couple of spike lee's family members involved his sister um joie lee plays clorinda who's nola's friend and ex-roommate um she appears in some of his other films as well his father bill lee played Nola's father and he wrote the score for the movie. He did the music for the movie. And I, like I said, the music I think is a big selling point of this movie. And his father, Spike Lee's father, I had no idea about this was like already a really accomplished musician. He played bass for like uh, Bob Dylan, Cat Stevens, Harry Belafonte, Simon and Garfunkel, Duke Ellington, like tons more people. Like, so I had no idea Spike Lee came from like basically a famous dad. Did you know any of this? Not really. Yeah, and I didn't know it was his sister either that was in his movies. I was just like, oh, Lee's a pretty common last name, but like, <laughs> no. And then a couple, one other person to mention, um, somebody named Ray Dowell plays Opal Gilstrap, who is Nola's um, lesbian friend in the movie. And she also appeared in Mo Better Blues and Malcolm X. So, yeah, so we're, we've already talked about our opinion of the movie. Now I kind of want to ask you, about would you have conceived if she's got to have it as being a Gen X film and why or why not? Um, I feel like it's a little early to be considered a Gen X. Oh, well, maybe not. I guess because Gen X starts like in the when does Gen X start? The 60s? 
I think it's 65. Let me go look really quick. Uh, Gen X. Yeah, 65 to 1980 is Gen X. Okay, thank you. Supposedly, according to some random website. (laughs) So yeah, Gen X. So Gen X, like, if you're born in 65, I guess you're considered Gen X. But like, I just mean kind of the, 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 so you're basing on time, but I just mean kind of the feel of it. Like, do you, does this feel Gen X to you? Uh, Um, I guess I don't really know what that means. Okay, okay. I guess yes, because it focuses on young people, which I kind of feel like that feels Gen X to me. The black and whiteness of it, because I feel like there was a lot of um, movie independent movies that came after this Mm -hmm. um, that were in black and white. And I don't know. I really don't know if... I guess yes, it is, and mostly I am basing that on like time frame. Okay, yeah. For for me, like when I originally was conceiving of the series, like I hadn't really considered like Spike Lee's work, and like then I was like, why? And I think it's because like the image of Gen X in popular culture is like so kind of tied up in some ways with whiteness, like with Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder and like grunge music from Seattle, right? And then I watched She's Gotta Have It for the first time. And I was like, wait a second, like this feels like so much like something like Clerks, except this came first, right? Right. Like this movie was before those movies. This movie has like a lot of the blueprint for the Gen X movies that came after it. So I was like, yeah, I think She's Gotta Have It needs to be recognized as a Gen X film and kind of like a precursor to a lot of stuff that came after. Mm -hmm. And then like, fortuitously while i was researching this movie i actually found out that in the credits of clerks kevin smith thanks a number of filmmakers including spike lee for leading the way and Mm. i found out that like spike lee was in fact a big inspiration of kevin smith's when he was making clerks and i was like haha there you go Mm -hmm. like i was i was right like this is all this is a through line so yeah I guess also just the idea of, you know, making something on your own, you know, like funding it yourself. And, you know, how you said that he didn't have any permits or anything. He just kind of that guerrilla filmmaking, which became like a really popular idea in the in the 90s. Yeah. Just like, oh, if you want to do it, just go out and do it. And then, you know, you'll make this great thing. And yeah, someone will distribute it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the very DIY, um, like, ethos of the whole Generation X. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, some of the things, like, so some of the things I was thinking about when trying to identify what's a Gen X film, what should be included, like, we just talked about, like, that, like, we just talked about experimental or indie filmmaking you just talked about, or um, shot on, like, cheaper film stock, shot on video, like, black and white is definitely the cheaper aspect here. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Character, like, having characters who are young, you mentioned, so I put, like, for Gen X films, characters who are kind of slackers or artists or bohemians. You've got Nola as an artist in this movie. Um, Mars is like unemployed. So you've got a few of the characters who are living that Gen X life. <laughs> and um, at the time, at the time, this neighborhood in Brooklyn was like an affordable place to live where like young people could live too. Like grunge music and fashion is not in this movie, but I mean, this predates that. Um mm-hmm. So this other another thing this movie does that I identified as a Gen X trait was reality TV tropes, like sort of talking to the camera or documentary style, like filming. That's like throughout this entire movie. It's shot as if it's a documentary. And then I talked about certain actors you identify with Gen X, obviously not in this movie. 
So another thing in a lot of Gen X films, people will talk about pop culture or nostalgia or like, um, you know, kind of a meta kind of thing where like they're a movie talking about movies. I don't see Mm -hmm. that as much in this movie, but I do see like sometimes people are having philosophical conversations or that, or just personal conversations that aren't really relevant to the plot. Mm -hmm. I do see that at times Mm -hmm. in this, it's very talky. And then Gen X films also usually have an attitude of questioning social norms questioning consumerism, definitely social norms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this movie is all about questioning a social norm and questioning sexual and relationship norms is common in Gen X films. Having LGBT characters is common. I don't think that this lesbian character is particularly well-drawn or <laughs> flattering necessarily, mm-hmm. but right. she's there at least. Like, at and, least it, and it's very telling of the time as well. I mean, just the fact that it was in there and then it was addressed in Mm -hmm. 1986 is was probably huge or like yeah kind of unheard of you know yeah and then i would call the the time period for gen x films i would say probably ranges from the late 80s even up until about 1999 there's a few 1999 films that i think have a little bit of gen x flavor but yeah so i think this qualifies as a gen x film it's just maybe not something people have really thought about that way before Interestingly enough, though, Spike Lee is not himself Generation X. He was born in 1957, so he missed out on. So what does that make him? A boomer? He's a boomer. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) So, yeah, let's get into then the film. We'll start talking about it a little bit. So the film opens with a quote from Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. And Serena is going to read it for us. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So what do you think about this quote, like, and how it relates to the film? Like, what do you make of it? Anything? <sighs> I, I don't know. I don't know what I think about this quote. I, I, have you ever read Their Eyes Were Watching God? No, I'm interested to read it now. So I read, I researched a little bit about it and it's from 1937 and it was considered a really important book of the Harlem Renaissance. And mm-hmm. I guess the book's main female character the whole book is about her searching for a love, but like she ends up with a lot of men who aren't really that great, I guess. Mm. So sounds about right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I make. I feel like it's like out of context, but it would be weird that it's like, you know, it opens with this quote, like what is Spike Lee's trying to say? Yeah. Um, I guess like in a way it almost feels like it's saying that like guys will be really like devoted to like this one thing and, but women will just like forget things and brush them aside and just like keep on living their dream. I don't know. Like that's the only thing I can make out of it. (laughs) Right. I I do feel like that's, I feel like that's the only way I can relate it to Nola and what's going on with her. Like, yeah, I don't know. I am interested. And maybe it's more if you've read the entire book, there would be some kind of like revelation mm-hmm. in that too. I think Spike Lee often puts kind of deep cuts in his in his movies where like he expects you to have a certain cultural knowledge to be able to keep up with his references. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is very common for Spike Lee. He'll often have like quotes. And then he also, also does another thing where he has a bunch of still photos 
of Brooklyn that were taken by his brother, David Lee. So another um, Spike Lee relative took all the photos at the beginning, which are pretty beautiful photos of just kind of people hanging out on the street or whatever. Yeah. Did you like that or like? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I Again, think the- this brought up like a lot of like Brooklyn nostalgia for me, which I, which I, I think I liked the most about watching <laughs> the movie. Yeah. The feel of the city and everything. Yeah. yeah. Cause I do, I miss it. I do miss it. It's interesting how it like gets in you. It like mm-hmm. New York really does like become like a part of you. Nice. Yeah, and then this is all set to the beautiful musical score, like kind of a jazz score by his father, Bill Lee. So the opening's really gorgeous and very typical of Spike Lee's openings of his films in general. So then we get into the the story, though, and we start out, we see Nola. We don't even see Nola at first. We just see the bed, and there's like a shape under the covers. And then like Nola emerges from her covers I love, I love that actually. I love the whole, she has this very dramatic bed. It's got all these candles, like kind of like just on the bed frame. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the bed is like the center of her apartment. It looks like very much like you would set up a theatrical stage, like for a production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what, like, what do you, you said you liked her apartment. What do you like I about do, it? I do. Yeah, I did really like it. Well, I guess it's, I, I, I don't know when that like became a thing, but you know, the it's like, you said it yourself like DIY like obviously she made that bed herself and I like that idea of it like she just didn't go to the store and like buy one with like a bed frame like she made that so it was very intentional to create that atmosphere Hmm. which I thought was which I thought was interesting and I like that and then yeah her loft is is pretty amazing as far (laughs) as like New York goes um it's huge and yeah like a true artist loft and usually you don't see that it just being you associate that with men a lot of times, you know, like a, a man living by himself in this kind of like industrial loft. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of interesting to see um, a spin on that and seeing it being a woman. Yeah. And then like right away you get um, Nola's introduction, her self-introduction. So like the introductions to each character are filmed just like they would be in a documentary. And they actually put the name of the person on the screen right before they start talking. Um, So I'm going to do, I tried to get a clip of this, but I couldn't get one to work. So I'm going to do her self-introduction. I want you to know the only reason I'm consenting to this is because I wish to clear my name. Not that I care what people think. But enough is enough. And if in the end it helps some other people out, well, then that's fine too. I consider myself normal, whatever that means. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. I think it's just a very strong self-introduction of a character. Mm -hmm. I liked that. I, I was like kind of... As much as some of the filmmaking is is clunky at first glance, when I first watched it, I was with her self introduction right away. Mm-hmm. Like I identify with that. I don't know. You said you weren't you weren't quite as you weren't quite as on board with her, but do you like her self introduction? I do. I mean, I like I like her and I like her character, but it's not it's not necessarily something like I don't relate to that as much. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit about um, Nola's three lovers and their relationships. Um, So we're not going to go over the whole plot like we sometimes do. We'll just like talk about like some of the characters. Mm -hmm. So 
first, first we have Jamie Overstreet. Um, he believes in the one in his opening gambit. He talks about how he believes in one person for everybody, which is often what the woman will say in a movie. Like it's very gender reversed in terms of like Nola's a free agent and he wants the one. Mm-hmm. And I think, and each of the men also meet her like in a different, I noticed this when I was watching last time, Jamie walks up to her, Mars bicycles up to the camera and Greer drives up to the camera when they're mm-hmm. in, each introduced. Did you notice that? Mm-mm. I thought it was cool. That's a good observation. Yeah, that's a good observation. <laughs> it's like, um, so no, Jamie actually meets Nola on the street and we actually see their meeting. That's the only relationship where they see the first time they meet. And he says to her, Nola, I don't want a chance not seeing you again. Whatever you want to do, I'll do. Wherever you want to go, I'll take you. Will you see me? I think it's a pretty good pickup line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and also then we see their sex scenes. We see like sex scenes with all three of the guys too. And like Jamie's and Nola's sex scene, like the initial one, is very romantic, very artistically shot. A lot of close-ups of their faces kind of in, in pleasure Mm-hmm. like lingered on even like a lot of like just love goes into that scene. I would say mm-hmm. um, I thought it was really beautifully done. What do you, what do you think of um, the initial relationship between Jamie and Nola when you saw it in the film? Um, I remember being the, the meeting part stuck out to me because it's such an, that would be such a weird way to meet someone nowadays. You know what I mean? Now, like yeah. now it would like be. that he kind of like followed her. Like I almost got like a creepy vibe. Like I was oh, like, yeah? Oh, that's creepy. He's following her. And then she like knew. So she stops and she's like, are you following me? I don't know. I, I was immediately like danger. <laughs> <laughs> like that's just what came up for me. But, um, but I guess that's how people like, that's how people got together. I suppose. Sometimes, you just like yeah. saw I, maybe it still happens. I have no. Now I think it's just all dating apps. But um, yeah, you just go see someone you are attracted to physically and are like, go out with me. I don't know. It just seems so bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> and what about like other aspects of like their relationship that in the beginning of the movie without spoilers or like um their sex scene or whatever? Um. I mean, it didn't really like stick out to me as anything. Okay, um, but that was me. I don't know. <laughs> I thought the I, honestly the sex scene stuck out a lot to me because, like, I think like um, it wasn't like there there you did see Nola's body, like, but I didn't feel it like it, it was too exploitative or anything. Yeah, because it was really it felt like it was more focused on the emotions and the sensuality of the situation and like yeah. I just was so lovingly shot. There are a lot of close-ups of breasts in this movie, though, I will say. True. Yes. But they're, like, not, like, seen, like, but they're often seen from the side or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, almost no, I- like an artistic object instead of, like, <laughs> being breasts in a way. Right. Yeah, are you laughing because you agree? Like, like yeah, it, no, yeah. I do. Yeah, no, I do remember thinking that. Like, wow, there's a lot of like boob seeds in this. <laughs> but maybe that was just maybe that was kind of like the risque part of it. Like, I was almost seeing it through. Like, how old was Spike Lee when he made this? Like, 
I don't remember. He wasn't that young, though. He wasn't as young as you might think. I think he was already like in his late 20s or early 30s. He just maybe. seems young. But even, I mean, that's still young. It's like, um, let's see, he was born in 57. This came out in 86. So he was like 29 or so, probably 28, okay. 29. Yeah. Okay. It just kind of came across to me as like a guy that had like his first opportunity to like, <laughs> to like film a woman naked. You know what I mean? Like, it, uh, it felt like it felt very, quote unquote, the male gaze, you know, like, okay. oh, we're going to show a lot of boobies you know <laughs> like oh great <laughs> that's what i thought okay, I, okay. I very much felt like as i was, even though this is very about women empowerment and all those things i felt very much the male gaze on this like it was very obvious to me that a man wrote this yeah i mean i'll agree with that yeah i agree with the, the in terms of writing i didn't find like the filming as male gazy as you did i don't think but like mm. i it felt more like just like your standard art film to me but like i think a lot of the writing and the focus of on the characters can be a little bit you like yeah dude wrote this yeah 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 especially it, it when- is interesting i am glad that in his the tv show he does have female writers i i this would have been interesting if it this concept was written by a woman but mm-hmm. you know then it wouldn't have been what it is but anyways yeah Okay, so moving on from uh, Jamie, um, who I would say is probably the main lover in the movie, we have Greer Childs, and he is a model. He's very narcissistic. He's very into fitness. And he at one point, he tells Nola that he'll leave her if, he, if she ever gets fat. And I'm like, the minute a guy said that to me, I'd be like, okay, go now. Like, I just, feel, <laughs> I just like, I don't understand. I wouldn't want to sleep with him. Like, I wouldn't let alone date him you know what i mean yeah, like yeah. if a guy starts talking like that i'm just like oh you're unattractive to me but like yeah well as we mentioned he arrives in a car um and his opening a speech is do you want to give the opening speech or should i no i'll do it i'll do it okay um so his he says i was the best thing that ever happened to nola darling ask her she'll tell you that herself why she worshiped me oh we were something else together when we walked down the street heads turned we were one stunning couple it was i who made her a better person i molded her greer childs was the sculptor and nola darling was but a mere lump of clay <laughs> I love how he talks about himself in the the, the third person too. Your child was a sculptor. He was so over the top. I felt like his character. Yeah. I'm like, it's someone like that actually exists. I mean, I'm sure they do, but um, yeah, it was it was a bit much. Yeah, he's very over the top. He's almost kind of like more of an archetype. That's another reason why Jamie sticks out as kind of like the the love interest you take seriously because both Greer and Mars yeah. seem a little bit like almost cartoonish in terms yes. of how yeah out there they are um yeah and like Greer also like later is shown kind of looking down at the other guys he's supposed to be I guess kind of the upwardly mobile guy and like I don't know like I don't understand I think maybe people didn't like Billy D Williams at the time because like at one point Mars calls him like a Billy D motherfucker or something like that. <laughs> I don't know poor huh. Billy D Williams yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that meant, like culturally in like nineteen. I'm not exactly sure, but it seemed like it was an insult. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyway, like yeah, there's so Greer and her have a sex scene too that's kind of like starts as comic because like they're gonna have sex and he starts taking off his clothes and like he's got a good <laughs> yeah. body, but then he's like very daintily folding like every piece of his clothing, like right. And she's just sitting there and getting impatient. I love, I thought that was really funny. Yeah, that was a good scene. Yeah. 
And then when they do have it, sex, it made me, it made me wonder, that. like, why she was even like entertaining him. But you know, yeah. that's I guess that's just part of the. Obviously, yeah. he meant something to her. Something. <laughs> when they do the actual sex scene, it's like not intimate and close up, like with Jamie. It is like very like physical and like. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of like they're rolling all around the bed. It reminded me a lot of one of the, I mean, it wasn't as fast cut or anything, but it reminded me somewhat of the sex scene in A Clockwork Orange um, mm. set to like the William Tell Overture or something where it's like a lot of quick, quick cuts to show the movement, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as quick. But like, yeah. yeah, it's it's just from above their bodies. You do see a lot of man butt in the movie as well. Yeah, true, true. And some abs. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it definitely makes a contrast. So I guess maybe what she sees in him is the physical. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I mean, he is good looking and has and, money. So, you know, she gets to go to like nice, nice restaurants and stuff like yeah. that. So, you know, so maybe it's that, that part of NOLA. And you see them like lifting weights together, doing exercise together, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we'll move on to Mars Blackman, played by Spike Lee. <laughs> he arrives on a bike. Um, the first time I watched this movie, I was super annoyed by him for some reason, just his character, but he kind of grew on me a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. He just like, it's like giant energy, like sporty outfit. Um, but his opening gambit, what he says is, look, all men want freaks. We just don't want them for a wife. You got it? <laughs> rude. Um, it is rude. He doesn't say it to <laughs> Nola. He says it just to the camera. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I did like his character too. I mean, well, his character was supposed to be kind of like the, the immature one, the one Mm -hmm. that like makes Nola laugh, the kind of funny, the clown, I guess. Yeah. The clown. Exactly. The jester or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And he's always repeating, like asking questions multiple times. He's got a lot of verbal tics. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it'd be like, is it okay? And she's like, yes. Is it okay? It's okay. It's okay. Like, (laughs) yeah. He does get kind of annoying. (laughs) Or any of these guys, guys that you could imagine, like, having a relationship with or sleeping with, like, out of these three? Uh, I mean, I guess, like you said, like, Jamie seems like the most, like, normal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, the most, like, well-adjusted or something, you know? Um, But, yeah, no, not really. But I guess that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah like also if i had to pick i'd pick jamie but i'm not sure if i'd pick any of them like mm-hmm. after more information becomes available throughout the movie <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah okay but like um before we talk about the ladies i want to do the dogs clip though because um this this clip is of nola's a kind of a montage of pickup lines i guess that nola is saying she has experienced personally and this scene's referred to as the dogs and apparently when this was first shown like to audiences before it was in release like this scene is the one that always hooked people in so we're going to play a clip of just nola remembering different pickup lines in my experiences i found two types of men the decent ones and the dogs it seems that men are taught not to be in touch with themselves with their true feelings but the things that they do say weak you so fine baby i drank a tub of your bath water congress has just approved me to give you my heat and moisture-seeking and mix missile. I just want to rock your world. Baby, it's got to be you and me. You may not realize it tonight, but you're sending out some uh, very strong vibes. May I continue? 
Well, you're lonely, you're alone, you're sad, you're confused, you're horny. You see, you need a man like me to understand you, to hold you, to caress you, to love you. You need me. What's your number? I know I only saw you for the first time in my life a minute ago, but I love you. I know I only saw you for the first time in my life one minute ago, but I love you. I love you. I love you. Look, baby, let's go to my house right now. Let's do the wild thing. I mean, let's get loose. I got my BA from Morehouse, my MBA from Harvard. I own a new BMW 318i. I make 53000 a year after taxes, and I want you to want me. Girl... I got plenty of what you need. Ten throbbing inches of USDA, government-inspected, prime-cut, grade-A tube steak. (laughs) (laughs) That last guy kills me every time. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this is kind of Nola implying that this is, like, what else is out there. So then you kind of see, like, well, I can see why you're with Greer and Jamie and Mars. <laughs> True. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, like, um. so one thing about this f- scene, too, is this scene is one of the first things where I was like, oh, yeah, this is a Gen X film. Because it reminds me a lot of, if you've seen Clerks, there's this scene where they say this job would be great if it wasn't for the fucking customers. And there's a montage of dumb customers, (laughs) (laughs) which was always one of my favorite scenes. And I'm like, Oh, this is just like, like she's got to have it. Like this could have been an inspiration for the scene in clerks. So Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think about the scene? And I mean, it's funny. It gets its point across for sure. Have you ever experienced any pickup lines of this level or (laughs) probably I probably have. Um, I can't think of anything specific. I mean, being here in the Caribbean, I mean, it's, um, it's very misogynistic culture. Mm. Um, and there's definitely way more like catcalling and like kissy noises and oh just overt, I don't, it's not even pick up, overt harassment, mm. I guess you mm-hmm. could say, um, is, is very prominent here. Hmm. which is which is cultural so i try to ignore it yeah i used to get more upset at the, when i first got here and you know a lot of times like the, the kissy stuff like yeah you know you're like across the street or something like that and you're like what is that to me am i a dog are you calling a dog <laughs> you know and, and you're just like you're like what are you expecting like me to do like and i yeah. think they just want a reaction you know what i mean or a, sure. a notice it, it's very bizarre it's like when guys in Lake Geneva would yell at you from a car, like, and, like yeah, what, are, what is the outcome here? You just drove away anyway. So even if I did like you, what, what, yeah, what, what, what am I supposed does it actually work? Does this ever work? Does anybody ever like turn around like, oh, were you calling me? Like, no, it just makes you uncomfortable and like walk faster. Yeah. Like, I don't know if these like are supposed to be implied that they happened on the street in this montage or if they're like in clubs, but yeah. I mean, I think this kind of thing was much more common in the eighties too. Like, Especially right. you'd go out to a club, you'd meet people, you'd the ridiculous pickup lines. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever get too much of this, I guess. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in addition to the men in um, Nola's life, we get very sort of brief glimpses of women. Like there's a roommate named Clorinda, well, a former roommate who used to live with her, who stopped living with her because too many men were coming over every night. Fair enough. When she said, <laughs> when she said that, I was like, 
fair enough. Like, cause that would, that would make me super uncomfortable. I mean, yeah. even living in New York, I remember we had, um, we had a couple of roommates that, that were like that, that yes, there was guys that would just be in your apartment and were like, what are you doing? I remember mm. one time in particular, one of our roommates brought home an obvious Nazi. What? Like an obvious skinhead. Yes. Like not like, like a straight edge skinhead, like an obvious like Nazi skinhead? Like an obvious like Nazi like like yes. And we were like, what are you out of your mind? She had like picked him up and we're like, we live in a predominantly like black neighborhood. This is like one of the only apartments that has like white people coming in and out, not me included. And like and one of our, you know, Aaron's girlfriend was Jewish like we were like and she just didn't even realize it because she was so drunk and fucked oh, up man. that she'd like brought this guy home but anyways it, it turned into a big thing but yes when I when she said that I was like oh yep bye <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I mean in the, in the movie though um, they're still on good terms you see them talk a couple times like not much though it's almost like you could take that character out and it like it's the character's almost there just to show that Nola has female friends. I think I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like three total women I think that speak. There's Clorinda. Um, there's her. Nola ha- goes to a therapist at one point, uh, and then Opal. Uh, Opal is the lesbian character, and like basically her main motivation in the movie, or maybe only motivation, is that she wants to sleep with Nola. <laughs> so she's kind of this like predatory lesbian stereotype in the <laughs> yes. movie. Yes. I mean, I think she seemed like potentially she could have been an interesting character if she'd had been I, given and more to do. I actually did like like her, and I I did like her like uh, scenes with Nola. Like I almost thought she'd had better chemistry with Nola mm. than than the guys did, you know. But obviously, mm. like Nola wasn't, yeah, you know, obviously wasn't going in that direction. Yeah. But yeah, it was a little, and e- even her. Um, how threatened was it Jamie? Was it Jamie yeah, who came yeah, over? Jamie was how super threatened. threatened he was. I was like, woo. <laughs> but I mean, they maybe that was like what I don't know. I guess I guess that's what it was like at the time. Like were were straight men very suspicious of lesbians and their their girlfriends becoming lesbians? Was that like a thing? Some, I think some men have always been threatened by the idea that a woman might not need them. You know what I mean? Mm, I think that's fair. probably always like there's dudes who just have a problem with lesbians existing, basically, with mm. like this this class of women who doesn't need them, who isn't trying to play up to their attention, dress for them, etc. And also women know their own bodies. So maybe there's this idea that women know the other woman's body better, which could be accurate. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, like, yeah, Opal is definitely presented as a threat, but like she's, she's also bringing Nola soup and being nice to Nola, but it's just like, mm-hmm. she, yeah, she is made into a kind of a stereotype, which kind of sucks. Let's see. Oh yeah. And there's also like this whole, like, uh, I think at one point somebody comments on how they're too pretty to be lesbians or something too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yep. Because lesbians all have to look one way. <laughs> right. Because that gets the default. Like, oh, you're too ugly to be with a man. Oh, is that what it is? Is that what you think it is? But I think Spike Lee isn't like behind that part of it. I think he might no. like, like, I think subconsciously he might view lesbians as a threat in some way to have this predatory lesbian character. But he, I don't think he believes in the stereotypes at the same time. Yeah. That's so a weird balance. Oh, now we're going to come to, we're going to talk about a few different scenes that were kind of important in the movie. So the first one is the birthday scene. And I think this was like my favorite 
thing that he did in the movie. Um, Jamie comes over, tells Nola to click her heels together three times or whatever and say there's no place like home. So it's a Wizard of Oz reference. But um, whereas Wizard of Oz goes from black and white is home and color is Oz, in this scene, um, there's no place like home. She clicks her heels and it becomes color. So it's kind of reversed. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you've been watching this black and white movie and it's like not just color, but just like bright color. I don't know what film stock it was filmed on, but it's like really beautiful and bright. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it transports them to the Fort green park, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's a musical number and a song that's written about Nola. And Jamie has gotten a couple of dancers to perform this musical number in front of a sculpture, which I think is probably the prison ship martyrs monument. Like I was looking up like what this sculpture was. Mm Mm-hmm. And like at the time, like it was covered. I don't know if they did this for the film or if this is just the way the sculpture looked at the time. It's covered in graffiti, but then over the top of the graffiti, he's, there's a happy birthday Nola sign and these like, beautiful <laughs> balloons and everything. It's such a beautiful, colorful scene. And with this dance number and music, I loved it. What do you think about it? Um, I liked what they were trying to do. I felt like it was just like a little long and like out of place like i was okay. a little bored like while i was watching it like <laughs> okay. i understand i understand what it was but i was kind of like oh this is kind of weird that's I interesting because i think i think i was reading I, I if i remember correctly i read that like some of the producers wanted to cut that scene and spike lee was like absolutely not we have to have the entire musical number in there right and um, right. spike lee's him, himself a fan of musicals Mm. Which is yeah, and there's another big musical number, at least one. I think there's a couple in she's uh, or sorry in school days. Um, there's a really good musical number in that as well, and I think you'd be less bored by it because there's more choreography and more dancers. <laughs> yeah, um, but but yeah, I, I liked the dancing. I liked the song. I don't know what were you going to say. Sorry, I mean I did like. I, I think a lot of what this movie did was it showed such a different different idea of what urban life is Mm. you know what i mean like they they were very like nola's an artist and Mm -hmm. you know his idea is to have this like dance performance which i it's like you look at you think about it you think about urban life in a different way you know what i mean where these are very like young cultured artistic young black people which i don't think were really like represented that much at the time or even now yeah. You know, there's no there's no references to gangs or violence no. or, you know, a- any of that stuff, which is very stereotypical of like movies about, you know, urban life, I yeah. guess. So I really did appreciate this viewpoint, you know. Yeah, that's one of the things the film is definitely praised for when I've read, you know, critical looks at it. Yeah, is just showing a different facet of black life, just showing black people in love, black people experiencing relationship problems and not Mm -hmm. having anything to do with these like stereotypical, like, Mm -hmm. you know, gangster movies or whatever. Yeah. So the other thing I should mention, like some of the some of the lyrics to the music, I don't think were like the best written, but like at the same time, I got this song freaking stuck in my head, like for weeks after watching it. Um, I'll just put a little bit of the lyrics. Um, There's a girl that I once knew who often had a friend or two. She gave them time, love, wit, and rhyme sublime. But to her, it mattered not for loyalty was not her lot. Her answer was 
for not for them to know. See, the lyrics aren't written that well, but like it's kind of telling a little bit about Nola. Mm-hmm, and then the, mm-hmm. the chorus is, I'll, I want to sing a little bit of it. Sorry. There she goes on her merry way, though she's only queen for a day. Boy and girl often take this world, so you'd better mind what you say. Anyway, <laughs> that's like the chorus. I've got it stuck in my head for weeks. And <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's like if you listen to the lyrics carefully, you can get a little bit of like, this is supposed to be about Nola. And that's an awesome gift. I was thinking of that. I was like, whoa, Jamie just won me over on this one. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. That it was just so like thought out and like personalized. Like, yeah, you hi- yeah, and you hired dancers. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's a really special gift. Yeah. So then we, after this scene, we revert back to black and white. Um, Nola is in bed with Jamie at the night of her birthday. And then we get Mars calling and asks Nola to hang out. She says no. And then Mars is like, just let me smell it. And Nola says, you are ill. (laughs) And then Mars is, please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. (laughs) And then you see him hang up with Nola and immediately call another girl. (laughs) Right? Hilarious. That's just like the cap on that scene. (laughs) It's like the same thing they complain about Nola doing, he's doing. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So inevitably the men in this, well, not inevitably because it doesn't have to be that way, but the men actually, the men get jealous um, in this situation. They, it plays out with each of them in different ways. Um, Mars is like in bed with Nola. And we never talked about really Mars' sex scene. Mars' sex scene, you don't get much. I think yeah. you see him like kissing a breast and I think you see her touching his foot with her foot or something. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it was like undercovers. Like yeah. there was like, they almost made like a, a tent or something. They were oh, very yeah. much under the covers, which maybe is like a representation of their aspect of their relationship too, you know? Cause, yeah. cause Mars comes across as being more immature yeah, and, you know, maybe not as um, well at expressing intimacy that, that they would do it like under the covers. <laughs> It's also possible Spike Lee just didn't want to show his own body for the camera. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> it's true. like he's shy. He's like, I'm the director here. Yeah. <laughs> this is awkward. Yeah. Fair there's, enough. Fair enough. There's also the scene where he, I guess he, he puts her underwear on his head as a joke. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, like yeah. The, height of, the height of humor. <laughs> again, yeah. Again, the immaturity. Yeah. So Mars expresses his jealousy. He says, am, am I as good as Jamie or Greer? Um, that's his, that's where you see him getting jealous. Jamie has a very serious monologue. He says, I got sick and tired of feeling like a spoke in a wheel, which is what I was to Nola. We are all interchangeable, simply parts of a whole. And it didn't matter who, just as long as it was a warm body. Nola had no devotion, allegiance, or loyalty whatsoever. Nola hurt me to the core, but she's got to have it. So he does the, and and what is the it that she's got to have? Is it just, is is this just all referring to sex? Or is it like referring to freedom? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. She's got to have it. What does that mean? Like, I think on one level, you're just supposed to think sex. Like, that's it. Yeah, that she's a freak, that she wants sex. But also, like, it is variety, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I guess that's left to interpretation. And for me, it's like, like my, my interpretation of what Nola wants to have is control or just freedom, independence. Mm-hmm. So yeah, depending on what how you look at it. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
I, you can you, if you if you ever want to read one of the quotes, you may. Like I don't know if <laughs> do you, you want, want to read, read this again. one. <laughs> do you want to be Greer again? And I then this is yeah. Th- and there's Greer being jealous. He says, now I'm not saying that you're a nympho, a slut, or a whore, but maybe a sex addict. A nice lady doesn't go humping from bed to bed. Will you please go see a doctor? (laughs) (laughs) And she does. Yeah. She does. Like, which, you know, everyone should see a therapist at one time or another. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And what does the therapist say, though? Yeah. It says that there's nothing wrong with her. (laughs) She's she's not a sex addict. She's just... (laughs) living her life yeah (laughs) which i think was awesome too i'm like oh they didn't go down that route okay and then greer's like a female doctor what does she know (laughs) yeah exactly fucking fucking greer man (sighs) okay so we're gonna go now into the spoilers okay section so if you want to spoil anything that happens in the movie we're totally cool now so if you haven't seen the movie guys go ahead and see she's got to have it and then come back and be spoiled so the Thanksgiving scene is another one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, it's kind of, the, it's the only scene where you see them all at one place, like her right. and all the lovers. Um, what do you think of the scene? Um, I didn't like it, oh, but, no. it, but okay. it was inevitable. It you was tell. inevitable going to happen. I just thought it was so awkward. I was like, why, why would she do that? <sighs> and I, I get why as the film or as like a filmmaker would do that. But why would she do that? Why would Nola do that? I like, can that understand is just, it. <laughs> that is just a recipe for disaster that like <laughs> that, that made me see Nola as like that she was more manipulative. So I once had a thing. Okay. So as, as, some listeners may remember, like, I'm I'm not super actively polyamorous, but I've had like been more active in the past. And I once had a Thanksgiving where and there were other people there, too. It wasn't just us. But like, I once had a Thanksgiving where my ex-husband, who I don't think our divorce was had gone through yet, but we were separated. Um, my boyfriend, who was going to be my future husband, and um, my kind of friends with benefits who I think we might've still been seeing each other, but we might've stopped. We're all at the same Thanksgiving together and it was fine. Like, mm-hmm. but they mm-hmm. were not Greer, Mars and Jamie either. They were all people right. who, had got, who had gotten into a situation with open eyes and like, you know, you know, we're not like these like very competitive, like super, you know, agro dudes either. So, right. Not that these guys are in the movie are super aggro, but like they're a little bit more, you know, like they're ob- little- they're obviously like have some jealousies or insecurities or questions. Yeah, yeah, and like the other thing is like this. I am th- glad that they all know about each other. I think yeah. that is that that's great. You know, she was never like hiding anything. Yeah, yeah. Like this movie, like okay, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, but that's okay. We can talk about it wherever. This movie is kind of showing like a polyamorous relationship, but not really because polyamory wasn't even like a word in 1986. Mm -hmm. Like people Mm -hmm. were definitely living in an open relationship lifestyle like way before that, even hundreds of years ago. But Mm -hmm. like this was way before there were like manuals, books, like counselors Mm -hmm. who specialized in this kind of thing. So like Mm -hmm. NOLA is not, there's not really an established rule or an established like, um, boundaries that are in place. So it's a very different situation and communication well, and it, isn't and always And it always seems like it's like the assumption that she's going to pick one of them eventually. Yeah. 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 That's definitely in the movie. That seems to be the characters are assuming that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back though, I, what I understand is that Nola loves all these people in different ways. 
Mm-hmm. And I think like my my more positive interpretation of it is that she wants them to see in each other what she sees in them. She mm-hmm. wants them to like be a family with her in a way. Like mm-hmm. that that's my positive spin on it. Like she could mm-hmm. be manipulative, but I don't I don't see her as that. I see her as more like I love these people. Why can't they get along with each other? And you see kind of Jamie and Mars getting along with each other more or less. It's more Mm -hmm. like Greer is picking at Mars and a little bit of Jamie. (laughs) I think Greer is really the squeaky wheel in this, in this particular Thanksgiving (laughs) scenario. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, cause he's actively like, he calls like uh, what he calls Mars a chain snatcher. Um, (laughs) He just insults them and like, but they're like, more being civil trying to keep it up what do you think right um yeah i can see that i i can see that that jamie and mars were trying could kind of see what nola was doing um as far as bringing them together but yeah i still think that it was just like overall like a bad idea (laughs) yeah but i understand it like as like a, a plot point in the movie i was just like oh man why would she do this <laughs> and then even and then even the scene you know where they're like all like in the bedroom i guess i guess she's lives in a loft so it's like all one room yeah um but where like you know she's on the bed kind of cuddling with jamie and then mars is at the foot of her bed and then where's where's greer he's, he's in a like, chair by the side of the bed yeah by the side of the bed so he's completely off the bed at this point so yeah. i think that that was very um telling I guess of where yeah. they all kind of stood. That seemed more symbolic to me than it seemed realistic. That seemed also very theatrical and like yeah. more like not something you're supposed to believe really happened per se, but yeah. like just like a symbol of the, yeah, their relationship, the play, like cause Mars is just getting crumbs basically yeah, um, at the foot of the bed and Greer. Yeah. Just off the table, I guess after the way he behaved, I don't know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, it's interesting. I also think that like um, Jamie seems very primary just even at the dinner because he's the one that she asked to serve the turkey, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, like he's kind of being the head of the household kind of a role. And then mm-hmm. Mars is kind of playing up to Jamie and he says he wants to flip a coin for Nola. <laughs> it's like, and, and Jamie kind of humors him, but then like Nola's like my fate decided by the flip of a coin. She's like, not into it. And then when right. Nola goes away to kind of like console Greer, cause they've kind of pushed him away. Mars goes to Jamie. I'll make a deal with you. Like I'm going to hook you up with Nola. You get four days. I'll get three. <laughs> and then he's like, but I'll get the weekends though. <laughs> anyway, the, I identified with the scene just because like I've been in a position where I've seen more than one person and I always want them to get along. Yeah. Um, and I've had situations where that has been able to work. Um, but yeah, you have to be working with guys who are like on board and are not trying to be competitive and like, mm-hmm. you know, under, like understand what's up. And you also have to have basic respect and like kind of kindness towards the men involved. Like if I were Nola, I would not be seeing someone like Greer who's like actively insulting the other people. Yeah. You know, I would only want to be with guys who are like respectful and kind to each other mm-hmm. as well as to me. So right after this, we've seen uh, Jamie and Nola fall, fall asleep in the bed after the other two guys leave the symbolic bed. And um, Nola has a nightmare 
And I have a clip of that. We could actually, it's weird. I could only get clips of kind of weird tangential things with like side characters, but this is a clip of Nola's nightmare, which at first I didn't realize was a nightmare. Although maybe I should have. There goes that home wrecker. I know she's trying to steal my man. No good sleeping around, stank bitch. You know, I don't blame Greer, I blame her. She knew he was mine. If Nola had loved Jamie, it would have been different. Love? Oh, come on, she just fucks them and leaves them. It's sisters like her who are corrupting our men. The few good ones left. I'll be damned if she takes Mars from me. I'm four months pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. The decent black men are all taken. The rest are in prison or homos. I've gone to bed alone too much already. I'm from Brownsville. We don't play that shit. So what should we do to her? Let's set the bitch on fire. Your fucking days are over. Miss Girl will never steal another man again. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought, like, this scene, like, I thought was really interesting to have in there because um and there's some more speaking women characters too i think it was interesting to have in there because like a lot of times women will be even more judgmental of women kind of Mm -hmm. um having these free relationships than men are even Mm -hmm. because i guess you're you're shown as well i mean because you're assuming that all these women actually exist right so i don't know i think when she wakes up from the nightmare when she wakes up from the nightmare, she says that they were dating you, but I don't know if they were real people. But go ahead. What, what point were you? Well, I mean, I guess you're just kind of shown that the guys are dating other women. In the terms of the nightmare, yes. But I don't think in reality Jamie was, except for that one lady that he later. Yeah. But wasn't it the the dancer? Wasn't he seeing the dancer? But we don't know when he started seeing the dancer. Sure. Well, and obviously Mars was calling other people. So yeah. Nola's not the other one on his, you know, Rolodex. And who knows about Greer? But I'm assuming that those women, uh, she has some inkling that they they are seeing other people as well. And I mm-hmm. think that's like where the like double standard is there as well. Sure. You know, where you're saying that it's okay for guys to do it. Almost seen as normal. Whereas when women do it, you're considered all of these things yeah and you're breaking Um, some kind of code too i feel like yeah exactly and people will yeah people will assume that you're like if you're poly sometimes people assume like oh you're a homewrecker but like and there probably are poly people who are behaving in terrible ways and like um, being in unethical relationships but a lot of poly people would never date somebody who was not also in a open relationship where everybody knew what was going on, you know, mm-hmm. like they just mm-hmm. wouldn't, they would be against like cheating on someone, hurting someone, etc. So I don't know. Sexual freedom still gets a lot of judgment in our country. For sure. Well, and, it's just our, it's our culture. Like culturally, we just haven't been exposed to that, I guess. And a lot of that, but again, it does happen for men. have always had mistresses. Men has, have always had, you know, um, multiple, women in their lives and i think it it gets flipped when it can go both ways you know Mm -hmm. so let's see oh right after this nightmare then is actually when jamie tells nola he started seeing the dancer that and it's the same dancer that was like dancing for her birthday yeah so because he he said like this is my friend or i have a friend and then he's also telling nola that he needs her to choose like 
because he can't just see multiple women. That's not what he wants to do. Like he needs, mm-hmm. he wants to be with one person. So mm-hmm. this is kind of him giving an ultimatum mm-hmm. and she's not into it right now. We then go to like a interview that seems to have been filmed later. So like this movie's always jumping back and forth between showing what happened, like in the story of Nola's relationships. And then like these people later kind of giving a report back on all of it. And right. so this is like, Jamie's in a park bench later. And this is my favorite interview because Jamie's talking to the camera and then Mars comes in and he's like, you still talking to those guys about Nola? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is pretty funny. It gives like this sort of extra authenticity to the whole documentary. Seat. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then Mars is like, I want to talk about like, she's not reliable. Like she stood me up for this basketball game. And then he wants to start talking about the basketball game. And so he kind of derails the entire thing. And then at the, and then I love too that Mars like asked Jamie to call him and hang out with him. (laughs) Right. Cause this is actually kind of what Nola was trying to do at Thanksgiving though, which is what's ironic about it. Nola wanted them to get along with each other. And now like Mm -hmm. Mars is like, yeah, I want to hang out with Jamie. He's cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even though he, neither of them are with Nola anymore. I, I thought it was charming. It was. Yeah. Okay, so we go from that really light and kind of somewhat delightful scene to the worst scene in the movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, definitely like them both disturbing, but I guess that's the point of it, I suppose. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure what the point is. I hope that was the point to be disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in this scene, Jamie and Lola have broken up. But she misses him. Like, it's interesting because, like, the scene where she calls him is preceded. She's, like, trying to masturbate, I guess. They show her, like, like trying to masturbate. And it seems like maybe she was unsatisfied by that. And she calls him on the phone. Um, she calls Jamie. He's in bed with the dancer. But he comes over to see Nola anyway. When he gets there, Nola says she loves him. She wants him to make love to her. To which he says, you don't want me to make love to you. You want me to fuck you. And he proceeds to have really like violent, like sex with her, or at least very rough sex with her. I don't know if it would even be like violent if it was something you had sort of consented to in advance that you wanted that kind of sex. But like, it's very like, you know, from behind, like using her roughly, she says, you're hurting me. I don't think she actually says, no, but she might say stop. I can't remember. I didn't get a chance to I watch it. I don't think she does. I think I think she only says you're hurting me. Yeah. But like later in the movie, this is referred to as she describes it as your near rape of me. So she doesn't call it a rape, but she calls it a near rape. Like she consented to sex, but she didn't consent to that sex. And like probably if in the middle of it, she would have said, No, I don't want this if she had her faculties, if she hadn't been so shocked by the experience. And it very much just seems like it's Jamie's way of like trying to take power and control over her, which is so much of what rape sort of mentally, I think, is. It's not necessarily about sex. It's about men dominating or taking control or power from women a lot Mm -hmm. of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you make of the scene when you watched it? Were you surprised by it? Um... I wasn't surprised by it, mostly because of the when this was made. And and obviously our definitions of of rape and consent have changed drastically. Yeah. Since then. I can we can honestly say in like twenty twenty two that what we saw is rape. 
right? Like I looked at that and like that's rape. He's raping her. That's that's what I saw. That's what I yeah. thought that would be because I don't think that's what she wanted and I don't think that was like her intention. And I think now there's this big conversation with women that like at any time during sex, you can say I changed my mind or mm-hmm. this is not what I want. And that if they, if that man or woman continues, then that is rape. And I think that is a big conversation right now yeah. that, that women have been conditioned, not that women and men, I guess, culturally have been conditioned to once sex has started, you have consented, mm. right? Once, once that is initiated, you have consented and whatever happens after that, it's not rape anymore. And I think that conversation is changing a lot. And I think this scene kind of shows that. Yeah. Like I think the, the, What's interesting is she calls it a near rape. And I think that captures this thing where it's like legally, I don't think it could be called a rape. Like, I don't think they he would be prosecuted because right. she did say you're hurting me, but she didn't say stop or no right. or that type of thing. But like spiritually, it very much seemed like a rape because like the, it was, the sex was not in the spirit of sex or making love. It was in the spirit of like violence or taking control and you're hurting me should mean no, you know, like it should mean like, stop what you're doing and like, you know, rethink this basically like Mm -hmm. stop and like make sure somebody isn't hurt. And even in 1986, I mean, cause we're conditioned like as a, as a child of the nineties or whatever, like, no, like no means no. Like if you say no or stop, that's supposed to be like the signal. Right. Um, Unless you've already like, well, now it's even more so now it's even more so like where people are, it's more like enthusiastic consent. It's not even necessary to say no or stop. Like the sort of like, you need to hear a yes. You need to hear an active yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not to like light of any of this, but have you seen the movie? Good boy. Is it good boys? I haven't seen it. No, I haven't. But you know what I'm talking about? I've heard of the movie, but I haven't seen it. You, it's really, you have to see it. I kind of saw it like in a surprise, but there it's like these young, I think they're, pubescent boys or whatever it's about them and there's all this stuff about they're very i'm like i wonder if that i hope that that's how our boys are being raised now um but there's so much about consent because they're talking about going to like kissing parties and stuff like that and they're starting to like get into that kind of stuff and you know they're very adamant like you have to ask that and if she says yes you know like she has to consent and it's like so it's so cute and endearing but i'm like yes like that's that's great that it's it's something that's starting to come up in it's being taught what's being yeah. taught to to boys anyways so yes, I think, let's go back to nola darling <laughs> yeah i think what makes this scene like more disturbing like even than it is within itself is that like nola still wants jamie afterwards and jamie is like considered the good guy of the movie like you know even after this he's still kind of like portrayed as the good guy you know yeah and that she was able to like overlook this like as like a one-time thing as opposed to like oh this and even he says um when they're like talking on the bench or whatever that like i had never done any anything like that in my life like she had somehow driven him yeah yeah to you know, nearly rape her or rape her or whatever, yeah. you know, which is like, fuck you. <laughs> and then when, and then when she's talking to Clorinda, she doesn't even say like, Oh, he basically like, you know, assaulted me. She's instead, she's like, Oh, he hates me now. She's like, just worried that Jamie doesn't like her basically. Mm-hmm. So it's very, 
yeah, it's like, it's more the scene is disturbing to me because of the framework it's in rather than like mm-hmm. even just the scene itself. But yeah. But I also, I also take yeah. it into the context of its timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, a hundred percent. And people today just don't understand like that, like this was not, it would have played differently in 86 and like maybe that's like bad but and, like and that's how life, would that have played reality. out would people had, yeah would people have been like well that's she drove him to it and that's what you get you know if you are this type of woman your lover will near rape you <laughs> i think that's probably how some audiences did perceive it i don't know if that's how spike lee intended it though i think for me i think what spike lee was showing was like these complex characters and maybe he wasn't trying to make jamie totally good like maybe he was showing that like jamie is so insecure that he was driven to act in this crazy way like mm-hmm. i don't know but like but but then it's out in the world people are gonna you know see it as they see it so mm-hmm. spike lee regrets this scene i guess he calls it mm. his biggest regret, actually, in his career. Uh, mm. He said this in a 2014 interview with Deadline. So he said, quote, the rape scene and she's got to have it. If so, I was he, a- so he called it a rape scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In 2014, okay. he did. In 2014. Oh, okay. So, okay, so he, okay. Says, quote, he says, quote, the rape scene and she's got to have it. If I was able to have any do overs, that would be it. It was just totally stupid. I was immature. It made light of rape. And that's the one thing I would take back. I was immature and I hate that I did not view rape as the vile act that it is. I can promise you there will be nothing like that. And she's got to have it. The TV show. That's for sure. So this was around the time when he was like developing that TV show. Yeah. I mean, Spike Lee's own view on his film is a sort of sign of how times have changed really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, that's, um, that's the scene right in the middle. Well, not right in the middle, near the end of this movie that just kind of like sends it off on a different course. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, he, yeah like well that was interesting choice there all right and then so now we have the conclusion of the movie so in the conclusion of the movie nola breaks up with greer and mars in two separate scenes and she decides to see jamie um but she also says that she wants to be celibate for a while even though they're going to date and like she cites the near rape as one of the what she calls the near rape as one of the reasons why she wants to be celibate and i would i would think so (laughs) She's and like, then, well, that was a traumatizing event for me. So <laughs> yeah, and then Jamie's all like, "Oh, you go from one extreme to another. Like, what is this?" And but they are supposedly together for a while. But then we get a final speech from Nola. Okay, so this is the final speech from Nola. That celibacy thing didn't last too long. Who was I fooling? As for Jamie, I just got a little crazy. I should have never gone back in the first place. It was a momentary weakness. He wanted a wife, that mythic old-fashioned girl next door. But it's more than that. It's about control. My body, my mind. Who was going to own it? Them or me? I am not a one-man woman. So there you have it from a number of people who all claim to know what makes Nola Darling tick. I think they might know parts of me. And then you see Nola go back under the covers in her bed. So it like ends like a mirror image of the way it opened. And I really like her last speech. I really like her conclusion, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah. You mean that it didn't end with her just like, oh, now I'm just going to date one guy and yeah. it'll live happily ever after. Yeah. yeah I like that I she's got her own terms and she's got, and she also defines like the reason why she is behaving in this way because she wants control of her own life and her body and she doesn't want to be owned. She doesn't want to be a possession. And mm-hmm. she knows she's not a one man woman. Like, and like, 
I can go for long periods of time where I'm just with one man and I have for a while now, especially with COVID. But like, I know that like, that's not all of me, like my, my nature, like I do feel attractions to other people. And like, if I were in a relationship where I couldn't talk about that, express that, or occasionally date other people, it would be very stifling for me. It just wouldn't be true to myself. So like I identify with Nola on that level and maybe Nola is different than me though, because like, I think there are people who think that that's their nature, but they're avoiding intimacy. So you Mm -hmm. could argue whether is Nola truly just like not a one man woman. Is she truly like a free agent? Is this like, or is she just avoiding getting close? I don't know. What do you, what do you think about Nola? Do you think she knows her own motivations? I don't know, but I think she knows that her relationship with Jamie isn't right because they have completely different viewpoints. You know, if you know, you don't want to be like a, a a wife or whatever she said a girl next door then you know you know what's interesting is the nola darling that shows up in red hook summer is um a jehovah's witness (laughs) right she's she's become a jehovah's witness which is mirrors um the actresses you know becoming christian really right yeah and I, i couldn't help but be reminded of prince becoming a jehovah's witness either like the freakiest people have got grown up to be the jehovah's witnesses or whatever Right. Did he become one or was he raised one? Um, that's a good question. I think if he was if he was raised one, he certainly wasn't like devout like during his, you know, prime yeah. creative years. So he either like went back to it or just was converted. But yeah. Mm-hmm. He he did the whole door to door deal though. He did the whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. So Prince Prince like showed up at your door, like Yeah, I mean that would have been cool. Like, uh, <laughs> that's part that of what they do. Been- I would have let Prince in. He could talk to me about those women. <laughs> right? You'd be like so confused. You're like, I wonder what he would be like wearing. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, hello. I wonder if he'd be like in heels and like a maybe purple, a purple flowy blouse. Like, like I don't think oh. there's anything against that in Jehovah's Witness like, dumb. So yeah. Like <laughs> probably not the assless chaps, but yeah, other than that. <laughs> right. So briefly, like, I just wanted to mention the reboot. Um, it ran from 2017 to 2019, starring Dewanda Wise as Nola. Um, I only saw, like, one and a half episodes of it. It didn't, like, grip me, per se. I'm not saying it's bad. Like, maybe, you know, I, I, I'm, I might watch finish watching it, but, like, I'm just so busy watching movies right now anyway, like, for mm-hmm. the podcast and otherwise. Have you seen any of it? Did you, by chance, watch it? I haven't. Any? No, I haven't. Yeah, like it's on Netflix. It only ran for two seasons, but it's it's a lot different than the movie in terms of like, obviously you have a lot more scope to tell the story in a TV series. It's in color. Um, Nola actually has a relationship with Opal in the TV series. And um, yeah, I mean, I saw some good reviews and some bad reviews. Like some people said it was like a little bit too like didactic at times or whatever, but I might watch it eventually. We'll see. Yeah. It's available on Netflix still. Okay, so we're going to get into then our double feature recommendations. So my first double feature recommendation is Spike Lee's second feature, which is School Days. And the reason I recommend it, it's like just another look at his indie filmmaking style early on. It's got a great musical number in it. And like a lot of actors you'll recognize, like a lot of the people that Spike Lee kind of like discovered early on show up in this movie you including Lawrence Fishburne is in the movie Giancarlo Esposito is in the movie 
And there's even like a really small appearance by Samuel L. Jackson. So I think like it's about um, kind of Spike Lee's experience in college at a historically black college or university. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting. So I would recommend that highly watch it as a double feature with this or watch it as a double feature would do the right thing. Hmm. All right. Um, I, I had a hard time with this. I had a hard time <laughs> figuring out movies um, that would be a double feature made just because I haven't seen a lot of Spike Lee movies. Uh, so I picked a movie that is not a Spike Lee movie, but kind of came out in the same era. Um, it's, it's the movie Crush Groove that actually uh, apparently Ernest the photographer, yeah, um, worked on as well. Uh, it takes place in New York as well, and it's kind of about the or it is about the upcoming what was then the upcoming hip hop scene. So, and it has a lot of the artists of that time. And, and I think Mars Blackman kind of represents that, that sort of fashion era as well. Mm-hmm. Like that hip hop scene is coming up, like the gold chains and the outfits and, and that scene in New York that was happening. And it's a really interesting uh, movie. It's, it's fiction, but it's also like a documentary because it has a lot of like actual artists in it, like LL Cool J, the Beastie Boys, um, Sheila E is in it, which is nice. like amazing if you know who that is. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a good movie about that that era and that time frame and like what was happening in New York City in the the early to mid eighties as far as like hip hop is concerned. So. Nice, and it yeah. has and it has a connection which I didn't even realize has a connection. Yeah, no, that's why I thought this. you. That's why I thought yeah. you had chosen it. I was like, no, oh, cool. I didn't, not at all. I, I was just trying to like, yeah, <laughs> go through movies that I actually seen. Yeah, um, so there's a lot of movies that you could, but I'm like, I'm not going to re- recommend that because I haven't actually seen them. You know, so yeah, right on. No, I thought you were like, oh, she's making deep cuts. She's making connections to the cinematographer. <laughs> no. Yeah, it was it was just happenstance. Okay, so my second recommendation is another early Spike Lee film, um, More Better Blues. And the reason I recommend this one is because it's another relationship story. A lot of the movie is about Denzel Washington's main character, and he's actually dating two women, and that's causing problems in his life as well. And Joie Lee shows up as one of those women that he's dating. And also in the movie, you get Wesley Snipes shows up and Giancarlo Esposito shows up in that as well. And it's got a lot of music in it. They're in a band together playing jazz. And so you get Bill Lee's musical score in that movie as well. So a lot of the things that I liked about um, She's Gotta Have It play off again in More Better Blues. And I think it's another just relationship movie of Spike Lee's. Although it does kind of get more into like... Um, Denzel Washington's character's relationship with Spike Lee's also in this with his friend played by Spike Lee. So it's not just about the women relationships with women. It's also about his friendship. So yeah, it's a relationship movie though. I think it could be a good double feature. All right. Um, a movie that I had seen or have seen uh, that Spike Lee did is a movie called Crooklyn, which is, which is, I guess one of his like Brooklyn series movies because a lot of his movies takes place in brooklyn or parts of them take place in brooklyn um it's just a good this is just a good story um i i watched it at the time when i was living in brooklyn and again i really i really liked seeing like the neighborhoods and and new york city portrayed in this way in film it does have i remember um a good friend of mine in new york she's still a friend her cousin is actually alfred woodard 
and so we watched it together and it was like funny well it's her dad's cousin but i don't know that was it was just like a funny like coincidence i was like really you're because she's so famous yeah, I, I, she's I really so admire many things. her yeah, she's and i was like actress. wow that's a that's a cool connection but anyways yeah another spike lee movie it's good it's about brooklyn which she's got to have it takes place in so nice okay so my last recommendation well okay my last recommendation i'm gonna give a short recommendation for something else too but my last recommendation that like from my heart is short bus directed by john cameron mitchell and that's because this movie that he made is kind of the biggest movie i've seen made about polyamory or open relationships or swingers like you could there's like a little bit of everything in this movie it's a movie that's like a few couples are experiencing problems in their relationship and they all get together and go to this like big party where people are kind of like having like sex in some places or conversations in other places and it's just an interesting exploration of opening up relationships and it's also this film was like made with real sex scenes. So it's like a por- pornography, but not porn. You know what I mean? It's like they are having real sex, but it's not like exploitative or like meaningless or anything like you might associate with a porn film. And I was able to see it with actually John Cameron Mitchell present once, like at a screening. Mm. And it was just to me, it's so beautiful. And it really portrays female sexuality, female open sexuality as a beautiful thing that should be desired. There's also like a gay couple in the movie who opens up their relationship too. But a lot of the movies about this one woman who's never experienced an orgasm and kind of her pursuit of that. And I I love this movie. Um, John Cameron Mitchell, I think is really cool. Anyway, he did Hedwig, of course. Yeah. Check it out. If you're interested in movies about kind of different, sexual relationships or romantic relationships and what they can look like. Okay. Um, the last movie I picked is 25th hour, which is also directed by Spike Lee. I think I was going through like an Edward Norton phase. Um, <laughs> then, do, do other people go through Edward Norton? Phases? I, I think I don't yeah, know. a brief one. But I, I definitely through, yeah. had one. I definitely had one where I was like, I was just obsessed with Edward Norton. Yeah. Um, and this movie I remember watching it and then finding out that it was a Spike Lee movie and almost being surprised by that. Mm. But then I'm like, why am I surprised by that? Because it wasn't, it it takes place in New York um, and I think Queens, but um, it's not Brooklyn and it's not, there aren't really a lot of black characters, just a couple of like, um, I think Rosario Dawson's in it. I think that's Mm -hmm. really the only um, black actress that is, that is in it, but it also has Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, which Mm. I, which I love. It's, it's a really good movie. It's basically, it's about um, a guy who's about to go into prison for like seven years. And, and it's like his last days, like what he does in his like last days. And he just like hangs out with friends and walks around town and, and, and there's other like storylines. It's just a, it's a really good movie. Um, I think Spike Lee got some praise as a director for this. I don't know if it was nominated for stuff, but um, just like a different, just kind of showing, showcasing Spike Lee's directing and, yeah. and what he does with uh, excellent actors, you know, yeah. Edward Norton and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think Anna Paquin's in it, uh, Rosario Dawson. Um, and it's just an excellent movie. So I recommend cool. that. I haven't seen that yet, so I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, Yeah. that's a good one. 
And just like finally, I just wanted to give a shout out. If you haven't seen Rush Omon, which is one of the inspirations for the movie by Akira Kurosawa, that would be an interesting thing, especially if you're like a film geek, film student type, to see the inspiration for the movie and then see the movie. She's got to have it. Very dissimilar movies, mind you. So, but I think it's interesting nonetheless. And yeah. Well, Serena, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and being the first um, of the Gen X series, even though you're not Gen X. Doesn't matter. I know. Thanks. It doesn't matter. <laughs> And um, yeah, keep keep listening, everybody. We're going to have next will be an episode on Heathers. And remember, you can always find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. Let us know what kind of movies you're interested in seeing on the show in the future. So thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye.